As we continue to look at the subject of waiting, kind of look multiple weeks here at the waiting game that sometimes we feel like we have to play, I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 88. So if you've got a Bible that you picked up from the back, I think it'll be page 339, Psalm 88. I'm going to ask Heather Johnson to come and read for us uh, this particular psalm. Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness, or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Thank you, Heather. A few things define our relationship with God, like waiting. So the series has been about waiting, but I think it's much more when we begin to read, especially passages like this. It makes us confront where are we with God. Waiting always does that. In the subject of patience, I wanted to review again. I feel like one of the best descriptions that I've run across, and I want to share it again with you. Patience is a deepening, ripening, peaceful willingness to wait for God in the unplanned place of obedience and to walk with God at the unplanned pace of obedience. Impatience is what we begin to feel when we start to doubt the wisdom of God's timing or the goodness of God's guidance. Maybe you've been tracking with us over the last few weeks. Maybe you've been with us. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the, the character in the Bible named Joseph. So his story is told. And the story of Joseph is 
a special one. It's a lifetime of faith-filled waiting. And then it resolves. And then what, what everybody meant for evil, God meant for good. And there's this beautiful picture in the life of Joseph, which I think really inspires hope. We, we took another angle when we talked about waiting last week. And the character we looked at, at least the snapshot into his life, is the character of Saul. And we looked at in the snapshot in 1 Samuel 13, how Saul did not want to wait. How he would not wait. And that snapshot was just a, a picture of his whole life where he was going to do what he was going to do. And when you're the king, it's nice to be the king. You can do what you want to do. So he went ahead and was impatient and that cost him greatly. But I don't know, as I, as I thought about Joseph in this story that resolved, and I thought about Saul and this person who could act, albeit impatiently, but could act, it, it made me realize there's another set of factors that I think would be wise for us to think about and talk about today. You see, the Bible teaches, and even as Heather was reading Psalm 88, I was reminded again, there are times where waiting remains unresolved. So I don't know if you noticed, it's one of the, one of the only psalms, it's the only psalm I know of that ends quite like it does. Psalm 88 does not resolve. As a matter of fact, if you look at the last word in the psalm, it's darkness. And that's the way it feels at the end. So the story of Joseph, there's resolution. But I realize there's times in life where no resolution is even on the horizon. And it seems like this is just going to be some indefinite period. There's another factor that makes that kind of waiting especially tough. And this is where it's a little bit different than Saul. You know, Saul could decide, I'm just going to go ahead. I'll act impatiently, but but I can even have the option of making a rash decision. But there's times where waiting does not really come with the ability to change your circumstances. So yeah, there's times where you can change them. But there's lots of times where you can't. You know what? You give me options and I feel pretty good. So if you say, Here, here's the three options. One's not so good, one's decent, and one's pretty good. And you give me that all day long. I know what to do with that. You know what to do with that. We know how to deal with options. But what if a particularly difficult situation that has no resolution on the horizon has no options? There's really nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to impact change. It makes a big difference. I think there are several in our church family that are wrestling through those kind of situations in waiting where there's no resolution on the horizon and there's really no ability to affect change. So let me just say, that, that may not be you. So it may be you're not waiting on anything. Like you got good news all week long. It's actually just been a, it's been a lifetime of good news for you. But likely that's, that's not all of us. And likely if that is you, that there probably is around the corner something that will test your patience. Likely you might be sitting next to someone who is going through a very difficult time. So I recognize while there are seasons of life where I don't have to read Psalm 88 and I really don't, don't even actually care to read Psalm 88 because of how dark in, in some of the places it goes, I also realize there are those times where I do go there and there are also times where Friends go there. And how will we sympathize? I want us to sink our hearts deeply into Psalm 88 because few things define our relationship with God like waiting does. If we see in this psalm, I want, I want us to look and, 
and really pay attention. So I hope you kept your Bible out or your screen on so that we can dig into what Psalm 88 says. And then I want to see what this means for us and our waiting. Can, can we feel for a moment the language of scripture that the psalmist used? Because one aspect of this language is when, when life feels more like death. As you read in this psalm, if you're reading it not just to skim the surface, but actually understand what God would have for you in preserving this word to us this morning. There are times when life actually feels more like death. Your life, my life feels more like death to me. Where do I get that? Look at verse 3. The psalmist is saying, my life is drawing near to Sheol, a a Hebrew reference to the place of the dead. In verse 4, he he says, I'm counted among those who are going down to the pit. In verse 6, I'm in the depths of the pit. In verse 5, he says, I'm like the one set loose among the dead and slain in the grave. I mean, this is death, death, slain, the grave, the pit. What does death feel like? So when life begins to, in a moment, not feel so much like, I got the world to live for, but actually when it begins to get, like, I, I, think, I think something's dying here. When we face death, and we know this, when we've lost loved ones, some of the pain of death is that there's a silence. That you, you'd, you'd give anything for one more conversation, and it's not going to happen. There's a severing of ties that comes with death that is so painful. And heaven's sweet, and we look forward to that. But there, there is a, a real pain we feel. There's an inactivity like nothing more is going to happen. And all that pours on us. And that's exactly the words that the psalmist is using. That's why death, make no mistake, death in the Bible is called an enemy. It's the last enemy. But it is an enemy. I don't know if you've been around someone or maybe you've even said these words, you know, a part of me died when, and you fill in the blank, part of me died. Or maybe you've, maybe you've verbalized it in this way, I, d- I died on the inside. We know what that means. I think that's what the psalmist is saying. Body's failing, the soul's failing. And it doesn't seem like, so this ride that the psalmist is on, it doesn't seem like it's going to have any end. It's going to land straight into death, and there's really nothing anybody can do about it. It'd be nice to do a U-turn, but there's some situations in life where U-turns don't seem to be a, a, an option on the table. When life feels more like death, the psalmist pours out more. He says, there's difficulty when we lack the strength to cope. We lack the strength to deal with it. Look at verse 4. Again, I I hope you see it in the text here. It says, I am a man who has no strength. Even in verse 9, the the first part of it, my eye is growing dim through sorrow. I don't have the strength to to cope. My eye, and, and there's different ways of interpreting that. So some interpreters say, like when he says, my eye is growing dim, it actually means aging. And when you, when you get older, sometimes your sight isn't what it once was. But others say, now it's more figurative in that your capacity for seeing what God might do, your capacity for vision of what God might be doing begins to grow dim and weaker and weaker. And I think either one could be in play here. I think either would be a suitable trend, uh, translation and interpretation. It may just be particularly an, a season of aging 
or it may be your body is growing weaker, or it may be a particular illness, or it may just be the sheer number of things. Sometimes I can like, I can handle about two things at a time, but when there's about 10, that's where it begins to feel like this, layered with this, layered with this, layered with this, that you just don't even want to check the inbox. You don't want to take any calls. You don't want to, you don't want to receive any messages because you just can't take anymore. And when your strength, like, if you had strength, you'd be able to cope, but, but your strength is, it's just drawn down over time. If you had the strength, you could, like, make it happen. You could say, well, I'll make some options where there are no options, but your strength is gone. You don't have any more in you. When life feels more like death, when we lack the strength to deal with this, when we, when we believe God is angry... I think part of the heartbreaking part of this psalm, if we go deep and we're not just willing to skim the surface, surface, is the the processing that the psalmist has of like, this could only happen if God was mad at me. Like this set of circumstances has to mean God is just not happy. Look at verse five. I mean, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm cut off from your hand. So the hand of God, which in some places represents his provision, he gives us things with his hand. In other places, it's the security we're, we're held in his hand. In other places, we're protected by his hand. All that, it's like I'm cut off from that. God, what's going on? Even in verse 7, did you see, your wrath lies heavy on me. So I think that what the psalmist in, in picturesque language, he wants us to feel like there's a weight on his shoulders and it feels physical, even though it's God. It seems like, God, what are you doing? Why are you pressing on me? Your wrath is just heavy on me right now. Verse 14, he cries out to the Lord, like, why, why are you casting my soul away? Why are you rejecting me, God? Why? Why are you hiding your face from me? Why don't you want to look at me? Why don't you look at, want to look at my plight? What, what have I done wrong? And, and even the, there's this picture in 17 and 18 of God's wrath just sweeping over. This could only happen if God were angry at me. I think partly why this is so difficult in this psalm is because most other psalms have some different vocabulary. Actually, it's the same vocabulary. It's just some of even the same vocabulary must mock the psalmist. So in verse 10, he says, you know, we want to talk about a God working wonders. Do you work wonders for the dead? So, you know, a lot of psalms are about God working wonders. A lot of psalms have this, like, we were waiting on the Lord and he came through and, oh, we have a mighty God. He did it again. Let's celebrate. Rejoice, O Israel. God came through. He's a God who works wonders. And here it says, yeah, but there's no wonders in the cemetery. When life feels more like death, like what about rising up and praising God? So that's what we said. Let's do that. Let's praise God this morning. But do the dead do that? He asked in verse 10, I mean, do the departed rise up and pray? I mean, what good is it then? Let, let's think about the steadfast love of the Lord. Lots of psalms about the steadfast love of the Lord. The mercy is the kindness of the Lord. That just seems to mock him. Like, apparently God, in all of his steadfast love, in all of his faithfulness, in all of his righteousness. Like, I'd like to be in a position where I could declare it, but I can't. I'd like to be able to say, look how much God loves, but I'm not, I'm not sensing that. 
I'd like to say, God, you're, you're righteous, but I, I feel like God has turned on me. That's what the psalmist is saying. And in some ways, it's hard to protest that because, I mean, we can protest and go, well, well you know, I, I, I don't really deserve that. And, and another part of our heart says, well, we know we're sinners. We know we're not perfect. So there's this inward war. God, what, what's going on? Is this why I'm waiting? Because you're mad? Is it because of something I did? Is it because of that? Is it because of this? This gut-wrenching psalm begins to unpack even more. Nothing that seems like he can do about it. This darkness, this nothing that seems to get it, be getting resolved. It probes even further when those who are close seem to be leaving. That makes it extra, extra hurtful, right? When those who were close seem to be leaving, you see that in verse 8, you've caused my companions to shun me. You see it in verse 18, you've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. When you read beloved, what you ought to think of, what I ought to think of, is that person right now that you know, regardless, they'll love me. They'll love me. They care about me. Good times, bad, they'll be there. You ought to think when you see companion and friend, you ought to think of that person that you know they'll be there for you. They, they have in the past, they'll be here then. So, so when you begin to see those people moving out of the equation, when they are leaving, when they aren't coming close, but they seem to be moving out of your life and you feel abandoned, sometimes the struggle of waiting has this net effect of, of pushing loved ones away or not letting someone in close. And sometimes we really don't know how to resolve that. Sometimes we see it happening. And it seems like more and more we have less and less in common with them. More and more it seems like we say this and they really don't get it. They don't get us. What's happening? The person that we knew would be there suddenly is too busy, won't return the call, won't seem to care. You can't seem to unload your heart, unpack your heart. Or, or maybe they're getting something you're waiting for. They're getting it. You're not. Like, how do you talk to them then? Life's happy for them. They don't understand. You begin to retreat. Is it their fault? Is it your fault? Is it God's fault? Is it this thing's fault? What, what's, what is going on? And even if you answer any of those questions, does it change? Does it change anything? No resolution on the horizon. No significant thing that's likely to, oh yeah, we just, and it all changes. Not, none of that. Now we feel where the psalmist goes. And the last piece of this psalm is the emotions that the psalmist has are just disintegrating. They're just coming apart. Verse 8, I just want you to hear the words. He says, I am shut in so that I cannot escape. I'm shut in, I can't get out. He's already said in verse 3 that his soul is full of trouble. In verse 15, he says, I'm afflicted. I'm close to death. I suffer terrors. Verse 17, it's like he's getting destroyed, but the destruction feels like drowning. It's like these things, these waves just keep coming over and over him. This is desperate. When your emotions begin to fall apart and you just don't even know how to, like someone says, get a grip, and you want to. You would love to. You'd love nothing more to. But it just seems like you, you, can't, you can't hang on much longer 
let, let, me, let me speak just very, very clearly as a pastor who cares about this church deeply and cares about Christians deeply. I know of many, many Christians who wrestle through long, long seasons of depression. I don't think less of them. I pray for them. I know friends that have wrestled through the challenges of panic attacks and anxiety that just can't seem to be squelched. And it just seems to get more and more and more. You probably know of, I know of, those students that are dealing with such pain and brokenness, maybe they can't even articulate it, that they begin to injure themselves, they begin to cut. And, and, and there's a cry, there's a cry there of, it, it's not okay, my life's not okay, I don't, I don't understand what's going on. You've seen, like I've seen, the eating disorders that, that break hearts, and you're wondering, what is going on? And you love that person, and, and maybe that is you, maybe that is where you are today, and, and, and you wonder, like, should you even verbalize that? Can you even go there? Or is church the place where all that gets cleaned up and that's like on the outside but not on the inside? And I just want you to hear the words of a psalmist that says, I don't know whether to be sad or I don't know whether to be mad. I don't know whether to be strong and kind of suck it up. I don't know whether, how to handle the uncertainty. I don't know what I'm supposed to feel. I don't know. I don't know anymore. I want you to hear this psalmist wrestle through that and say, I'm in terror right now. I don't, I don't know. And no resolution is on the horizon and no significant thing is changing. You read the last few verses and this is what the psalmist is saying. The last four verses he's saying, I look back at my life and it's been this way for a long time. And I, I look up to God and he seems to be saying, no time for you. And I seem to look around and I don't find much help. And I seem to be looking ahead and all I see is a pretty long road of misery. When you read Psalm 88 and you spend any amount of time in it like we just have, you almost have to come up for air and go, okay, what, 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 what do I need to hear from this? What is God trying to tell me? I hope you never forget Psalm 88's in the Bible. I hope it's a stark reminder to you and me that there are seasons, there are seasons that may go longer than you had hoped and longer than you had planned. Uh, of difficulty and doubt and spiritual darkness that come with all sorts of questions. I think I counted six questions in this psalm. Do you remember what the book of Psalms was used for? Do you remember? Uh, what, what was the whole deal, the 150 psalms? What were they for? It was the songbook for Israel and has become the songbook for the church. So when like, what are we going to sing on Sunday morning? got 150 songs to choose from. One of those songs, one of those songs is a little bit different. There's lots of songs in the 150 Psalms that like remember that, you know, the last verse, we're going to sing it with all we got and we're going we're gonna to express our confidence in the Lord because God's going to make it right and God's good and God's loving and God's just and we're going to sing that last verse with all we got and express our faith in the Lord. And there's one psalm that there is no verse, last, last verse like that. It ends with darkness. I think we need to know this psalm tells us we can express to God the raw hopelessness that at times we feel. 
Sometimes we read a psalm like this and that sounds less than Christian. Like, don't Christians talk differently? Like, I'll hope in God anyway. God will make it all better anyway. Isn't that the way Christians talk? Sometimes I think, maybe it's not the Christians we don't understand. Maybe we don't understand what it means to be human. Maybe we don't have a category wide enough to lament. Maybe we don't have a category wide enough, even as a church family, to, to grieve and to sorrow and to cry with those that are hurting. Maybe, maybe it's become too much. We put on a face and we, we can't hurt or share the burden of someone. We can't say, I see you there and I, I don't know what you're going through, but how can I help? And, and, and maybe we don't realize how much we need to be more human. Have we given permission to peop- for people to grieve without rough- rushing in with, here's the solutions, here's the talking points, here's a few key theological concepts, let me write them down for you. Just read them. I think you'll feel a lot better tomorrow. If we sat in someone's place where they're broken and hurting, and we just sat and felt that, have you sat in that place where, Lord, I did not plan on this. Lord, I don't see any change, and I don't understand why. Have you ever prayed a real prayer like this? Many of you have. Poured out your soul before the Lord. I just want you to know, always remember Psalm 88's in here. I think Psalm 88 does more for us, though. I I think it gives us a look, even in our waiting, and I think in our waiting, this psalm gives us a view of what real devotion to God looks like. You may not have thought that when, when Heather read it and it's heartbreaking and you think, I don't know that that would say like ultimate devotion to the Lord, but, but this is so core to our faith because this psalm is, is still talking to God. You know, it's one thing to give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. For he is good, he is above all things, his love endures forever, much like Psalm 136 says. But what about when you don't see it? You still talking to God then? What about when you don't see it? This, come, this coming Thursday, I love it. Our culture just puts a day, let's set a day aside. We're going to be thankful. And so some of you, you're going to look out and you're going to see blessing and blessing and blessing. And oh my goodness, you're going to be amazed. God, look what you've done. But then many are going to sit around and they're going to be missing someone at the table. They're not going to be there. And it's going to break their heart. This may be the year one, year two, year ten, but it's going to break their heart. And there are going to be memories of the past, and it's, it's, not, it's not going to feel like, well, this is just great. And, and around that table, I, if you have blessings, then praise God for those. But just know, as, as some are going to sit around that table, it's, it's going to sting a little bit. But in that moment, there still will be prayers prayed and quiet before the Lord, maybe not even verbalized, of saying, Lord, I don't understand. See, I think this kind of waiting, this kind of waiting pushes us to ask a real question, and that is, what if I don't get anything on earth out of serving God? What if it never comes? What if I never get anything on earth out of serving God? What if I don't pass the test? What if life isn't easy? What if there's no significant other that materializes? What if there is no job? What if there is no economic security? What if there is no child? What if there is no relief from pain? What if it is a life filled with uncertainty? You read the book of Job and Satan is just filled with accusations in Job 1. And you know what what Satan says? Accusing Job, accusing all of God's people. He says, listen, no one serves God without getting something. 
That's his accusation. God's people don't serve him without getting something. You give them something, then they serve you. But no one serves God without getting something. And you know what Job is? It's a testimony that that is so false. That Satan is a liar. You know what this room is? It's a, it's a collection of people, a family of people that say that's a lie. We don't serve God just because of what we get out of it. We, we have on our heart the, the same thing that Habakkuk said, though fig trees don't blossom, there's no fruit on the vine, no, no food, the flock is cut off from the fold, no herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation because God the Lord is my strength. We know of John the Baptist too, when nothing is looking like it's going to materialize for him on earth, he is in prison, he's sitting in a cell, and nothing is going to happen in earthly means for him to change this path and be celebrated for the amazing, amazing believer in Jesus he is. Nothing is going to materialize for him in this life. He sends a message to Jesus, says, are you the one that's coming or do we wait for another? Because I'm willing to wait because I believe in God. It's Hebrews 10 or Hebrews 11 where Hebrews 11 just packs on name after name of like this person did great things for God. But then you get to the back part of the chapter and it's, yeah, some were tortured. Others suffered mocking. Verse 37, some were stoned. Some were killed. The world's not worthy of these people. Some wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves. You know what that verse doesn't say at the end? And it all, but right before they died, it all got better and they lived the last five years happily ever. It doesn't say that. It says, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what had, was promised to them. But they, they stayed with God anyway since God had provided something better for us. When we are devoted to God simply for being God, we begin to answer some questions. What do I really believe? What do I really believe? What am I really after? What does God really mean to us? This psalm gives us a look into real devotion to God, but this psalm also gives us a look at real faith in the midst of doubt and despair. Real faith. How do I know that? I know that in some ways because of the first few words. Oh, Lord God, he directs this prayer and he says, you're my savior. Oh, Lord God of my salvation. That is real faith. The starting point of every believer is this. You are the God who saves. That doesn't make things simpler. It doesn't make problems go away. It doesn't settle everything in my world when I say you are the God who saves, but it is the starting point in which in the midst of despair and doubt, I confess faith once again. Real faith continues to pray. Verse one, I cry out before you. Verse two, incline your ear to my cry. Verse nine, every day I call upon you, I spread out my hands to you. Verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning my prayer comes before you. The word cry is a pretty elegant translation. It actually should be, I scream. I'm heartbroken. But God, I'm right here in front of you, praying. I read of one person who said, to abandon prayer is to embrace atheism. To abandon prayer just pretending God doesn't exist. It's to embrace atheism. Real faith groans before the Lord. It's the groaning of Romans 8. Like this world's broken. This isn't the way it was meant to be. 
And I don't want it to be final. So real prayer, you know what real prayer looks like? Real faith in the midst of doubt and despair. It looks like groaning over that relationship with a family member that's heartbreaking. It means groaning about that marriage that isn't exactly what you had thought it would be. And you'd love to see something very, very different, but it doesn't seem like it's happening. Groaning is, is, that, is over that broken home that won't heal or that sen- senseless loss of life that you can't even make it make sense or that expected loss of life which hurts just as much. Groaning is, the, is a recognition of the, the, the mental illness and, and the challenges that that provides to homes or the chronic pain or disability or a debilitating disease. Groaning is that abuse and the memories that linger. Groaning is the disappointment and that uncertainty. And that's not a lack of faith. That is real faith being tested in doubt and despair. Say, I'm crying out to you, Lord. Here I am again. I wonder sometimes, I... I, I Encourage us to wait on the Lord. I wonder if that seems abstract, even today, after kind of probing what Psalm 88, we can easily make it, well, I guess I just need to trust God more. I guess I need to wait on the Lord, and it seems abstract and theoretical. What might make it more personal? I was thinking about that very thing this week. I got a text from my sister who lives down in uh, South Carolina, she sent a text saying a family friend of ours that went to church with years and years had died of a heart attack unexpectedly. So he left a widow and he left a, a daughter who's a good friend of my niece. And the family immediately is grieving intensely. There's a new widow that has to make sense of life. My mom, who's been a widow now about three and a half years, went to Terry's house to, to show love, to help with the meal, to serve her. And I, I don't think I'll forget what my mom told me were Terry's first words upon seeing her. So the door opened and Terry saw my mom and she said, you know, you know, you know exactly what I'm feeling. You know. Makes all the difference when someone knows. Makes all the difference when someone shows up and knows. I thought about that. The power of confronting face to face someone who knows. And I thought of how Psalm 88 gives us a picture of what Jesus has done for us. A picture of what he's done for us. We hold on to God because he's held on to us. I want you to see this picture of Jesus Christ. We just talked about a gut-wrenching psalm. We talked about a psalm where the psalmist is saying, like, life just seems to be more about death. And then I think about Jesus Christ, who was born to die, who would tell his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem, and this isn't going to be like a coronation, it's a crucifixion awaits. I want to talk about life feeling like death. Jesus knows. Jesus knows exactly what that is. He goes to Jerusalem. I want you to hear him. I want you to hear him cry out to God in the garden where he's saying, my soul is weary even to the point of death. What is he saying? He's saying, I don't have strength. 
I, I, I don't have enough resources here to make it. I am, I am lacking strength. Do you hear him begging his disciples, can you pray with me? Can you watch with me? Can you pray for me? Because my heart is breaking. Even his emotions are so deep as he prays and cries deeply out to God. He's, he's affected physically in these gut-wrenching prayers. I mean, sweat drops of blood and he's crying out to the Lord. And all that tells us when we go through those times where the world is just disintegrating, we know someone who knows. He's not out there distant. It would be easy to think, I mean, God makes everything. God runs the world. What does God know about what I'm feeling? What does God know about a hopeless future? What does God know about this broken heart I'm carrying right now? What does God know about this? What does he know? And here is Jesus saying, I know. I know. He experiences the isolation from his friends. Scripture tells us all, all fled from him. One denied him, another betrayed him. Want to know what it feels to be lonely? Jesus knows. He's no stranger to that. The feeling that God is directing his anger towards you This is what Jesus is saying in the garden. He's saying, let this cup pass from me if there's any other way. Like, what is the cup? The cup is a a picture in the Old Testament of the wrath of God. Let that pass. Not my will, but yours be done. And he takes the cup and he drinks it to the bottom. So that when you feel like, God, I I don't understand. I don't even know what I'm supposed to feel. He enters into your suffering on that level. He is forsaken by God so that you will not be. He cries out, my God, my God, why you? Why have you forsaken me? So that you will never have to know one moment of what it means to be forsaken by God. This is the one who meets you when your waiting doesn't look like it's going to be resolved. This is the one who meets you when it doesn't seem like there's this escape hatch that's going to get you out of what you're feeling right now. This is the one who suffered so that he might comfort you so that when he enters into the suffering with you, you, don't, you can't say to him, you don't know what I'm feeling. He knows, he knows, he knows. And he's the one who then says, I will never leave you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You aren't isolated. You're dearly loved by God. I will say, I'm not sure knowing that helps me put together all the complexities I'm not sure. When I can't see a U-turn, it makes me feel three million times better. But I also have to tell you, the peace that it brings to my heart, that he knows, and he's not leaving, is the peace that can pass all understanding. This morning, can we just quiet our hearts before him? I wish, I wish... I just had a magic wand to wave over you and your family and your friends and no more hurt, no more pain. It all goes away. It's all better. But actually, that pales in comparison to a a Savior who bled, a Savior who cares, a Savior who meets you. I just like to give some space, maybe some quietness for the Lord. In a moment, we'll sing, but for right now, can we just talk to the Lord? Cry out to him.
Lord, hold on to us and hear our prayers. See us. Help us to be ministers to others. Heal and comfort and restore and build back those who are called by your name. May the one that's far from you today be brought back. May the one who's most cynical in this room have their heart totally rewired today. Help us trust again. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.